The word conspiracy often is used in the Old Testament to describe various nefarious plots that were put, put together by bad men to accomplish bad things. But it only appears two times in the New Testament, or at least in the New International Version. And uh, the first one, when Paul first was converted in chapter 9, it says there was a conspiracy amongst the Jews. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. And now we have almost three decades later, we read again, the Jews found, formed a conspiracy to kill Paul. You know, I would venture to say that there's not a one of us in this room who has ever been aware of a plot to kill us. Um, there's a few of us who have had some threats, and, but those have come from either our, our wives or our kids. Um, but for Paul, this was really quite a commonplace experience. In fact, it became part of his apostolic credentials when he was writing to the Corinthians in that second letter, speaking about the things that he had gone through as an apostle. He says of others, he says, are they servants of Christ? I am more so, more in labors and imprisonments and in beatings. And he says, often in danger of death. That the idea that Paul might die a violent death was not an abstract concept. It was something that he lived with in a very close and intimate way on a regular basis. And so <clears throat> most of the events that we find where Paul was endangered were kind of hysterical reactions because the gospel message threatened the status quo. As much as we might like to think that we are all kind of independent thinkers and kind of open to new and novel things, we're open to new and novel things as, all, as long as they're the familiar new and novel things and not something that's completely coming from left field. Understandably, we think if something's going to enter into our daily life that's going to alter the rhythm of that life and the sense of stability and security and safety, then we oftentimes become frightened. And that amazing to you and I might be that when Paul began to present the gospel of Jesus Christ, which was such a radically different way of looking at life in, in its entirety, that there were people who felt threatened by that. They knew that if people became Christians and really began to embrace the Christian lifestyle, it would alter the dynamics of everything within their society. In fact, historically, we know that even when we look later on at the abolition of slavery that began really during the Middle Ages and earlier, it started because as Christianity spread, more and more Christians said, this is not proper, this is not right, this contradicts the very truth of God. So believe it or not, the whole anti-slavery movement was fomented by the gospel of Jesus Christ where Christ did something very interesting. Paul taught very interestingly that a slave was equal to his master in the eyes of God. There's no male, there's no female, there's no slave, there's, there's no freeman. We're all one in Christ. And that concept to us, which is kind of like, of course, kind of a, a duh moment, we would say, was revolutionary in the ancient world. And even up into the more modern world, it began to change everything about how people looked at one another and the historical pattern of enslavement that goes back to the earliest moments of written history. But we find that when Paul was in Thessalonica, it was not the Gentiles, but it was the Jews who raised a riot against him and who made the statement, he's caused, all, he's caused trouble all over the world. 
And so even though the Jews were not necessarily uh, in a position of, of equal citizenship, they didn't like the way Paul was affecting the cultural dynamics. And they said what he's done is everywhere he goes, he causes trouble. And that's an interesting perspective, you know. It's, it's if you, uh, as a Christian, go into a situation where Christ has not been named, and say, for example, a family member converts to Christ, you will find that there will be other members in the family who will say, you've screwed up our family. I know my own father's reaction to my coming to faith was to ask my mom, where did we go wrong? I mean, quite seriously, that was his perspective. What, he's, he's been ruined because now he's a Christian. He never said that when I was in drugs or alcohol or when I got into Hinduism and all those other things. He kind of didn't seem to bother him that much. He figured I'd outgrow it if it didn't kill me first. But suddenly this was different because he said, you're really serious about this. You're really serious about this. And he saw it as destroying the plans that they had for my life. And I think that sometimes we can miss that dynamic because we don't run into that kind of opposition or obstacle. And yet we find the men who made this very accusation had one thing they wanted to do, and that was above anything else, is to silence Paul so that he wouldn't continue to communicate. Because as by their own admission, they said they were, he baffled the Jews by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. So it doesn't depend on where people's loyalties lie. They may lie in a lot of places, but when there is something that comes in with the gospel and places Christ at the center of the decision-making grid of people's lives, it causes conflict for the people who are accustomed to being at the head of that line of decision-making. This conspiracy was doubly diabolical in a sense because it was a clear violation, the very Torah or Mosaic law, that the very perpetrators of this assassination claimed to be defending. And I know you may sit back and say, this is so hypocritical, but you have to kind of look at yourself sometimes and realize that sometimes you can be so bent on protecting something or keeping something that you do the very things that you're supposed to be rejecting. Because first of all, what we know is the law forbid murder. It was wrong, thou shalt not kill. Literally, the translation of that text is thou shalt not murder. It's not an anti-war statement at all. It's the idea of the wrongful taking of another person's life. Secondly, the law said that there had to be due process if someone was going to be executed. That basically, they had to have a public trial. They had to be, that trial had to be held before duly appointed judges. And there had to be evidence from at least two or three witnesses before anything could be decided. And in Paul's case, they were not seeking to punish a murder. They were planning on committing a murder. So the very thing that they said they were against is the very thing that they were about to propagate. And so this is a clear perversion of the system, which is something that shouldn't surprise us because people in positions of power often will pervert a system in order to ensure that their power remains. But what made it even worse is the highest, the most respected, the most trust, trusted levels of leadership in their nation were complicit in this plan. I'm just thankful that we don't live in a country like that. 
But you have to understand that conspiracies are always about power. It's about getting power. It's about keeping power. And sometimes to use any and all means in order to ensure that. That's why we find that all through history we see examples of conspiracy, especially in the biblical history. I mean, when Joseph's jealous brothers conspired to murder him quickly and then decided that they would rather murder him slowly by selling him into slavery because most slaves in Egypt never lived past the early 20s because they were worked to death and they figured, well, we'll never see him again. And of course, we know that God intervened and was a miraculous deliverance, but we have to understand that these brothers got together and conspired to rid themselves of Joseph. Or Absalom, who conspired with many within the nation to overthrow his father David, to have him murdered and then to place himself on the throne. He conspired to rid his father of the kingdom. Or Haman that we read in the book of Esther, who conspired to commit genocide against the Jews simply because his ego was offended by the fact that Mordecai wouldn't bow down and worship him. And then, of course, the most classic is Judas Iscariot, who conspired with the leadership of the Jews to eliminate Jesus. So the question we might want to ask is, what exactly is a conspiracy, and how does it differ from just ordinary bad behavior? Because there are a lot of people who really do bad things, terrible things. I think recently of how the guy up in what was it, North Dakota who ran over a young man because of their political differences. And, you know, it wasn't like he had gone to the place where he was and thought, who can I run over today? But it was just this spontaneous expression of rage and anger and probably somebody who isn't mentally stable to kill somebody that he felt offended to. And those kind of things happen, but those aren't conspiracies. They're bad, they're terrible, they're wrong, but they're not something that people got up in the morning and said, you know, I think today I'm going to run somebody over. Nor did they engage other people. Conspiracies have really kind of three distinct characteristics. The first one is that they're usually an alliance, but it's usually an illegal alliance. I mean, let me kind of go out and limb speculate here. Say, for example, the FBI, the Justice Department, conspired against taking out political opponents. If something like that were to happen, we know it would never happen, but if something like that were to happen, that's a conspiracy. You got a group of people planning together to do something specifically that's really against the law, an illegal alliance. The secondly, it always requires deception and secrecy. Because it's wrong, because it's illegal, because it shouldn't be done, it's really fomented in darkness and in shadows and in secrecy and deceptiveness. And lastly, it has one objective, and that is to eliminate obstacles to the grasping of power. That's what makes it really very different from just ordinary bad behavior because it's premeditated and it's highly organized. Sadly, as I've already noted, human history is riddled with conspiracies from the earliest times even up into the present. And conspiracies are so ubiquitous that I couldn't help but chuckle when I saw a young man with a T-shirt on a short while back. And he simply had written on the front of his T-shirt, I need a new conspiracy theory because all of my old ones have come to pass. One doesn't have to look very far or very hard to find multiple conspiracies. And they can be often written off as being theories 
uh, fomented by whack jobs or science deniers or racists, Nazis, Putin puppets or whatever. And yet when a conspiracy is successful, we find that the conspirators actually take pride in what they've done and sometimes become very boastful about it. For example, David Rockefeller, who uh, at the age of 91 writ his, wrote his autobiography, an autobiography you're not familiar with, is basically you write your life story. You write it down, you talk about all, everything that took place. And here was David Rockefeller, one of the most powerful, wealthiest men in the world, uh, head of Chase Manhattan Bank, heir of the Rockefeller Foundations and, and Fortune, uh, the guy who actually gave the UN the real estate in New York City that they built the building on. I mean, he was really foundational in the building of the United Nations. And one of the statements he made in his, his autobiography was really kind of took a lot of people's breath back. He said, some believe we are part of a secret cabal working against the best interests of the United States, characterizing my family, the Rockefeller family, and me as internationalists, and of conspiring with others around the world to build a more integrated global, political, and economic structure. One world government, if you will. If that's the charge, I stand guilty and I am proud of it. And you go, whoa, I guess at 91, you just get either really honest or all your filters are gone. I'm not sure which. I'm frightened that the second might be true. But the whole point is, you realize that here is a guy who's simply saying, yes, this is what we're doing. This is what we're working for. We're working towards one world government, one world economy, and within that, one religious consensus, just as the scriptures predicted. That's why recently, last week, when John Kerry was asked about uh, Congress's passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, it's, it's interesting because, you know, when you read Inflation Reduction Act, you, you, you might kind of conclude that it's supposed to help reduce inflation. Uh, but in fact, he, in a moment of tremendous transparency, said, it's an amazing piece of legislation in terms of climate change, but I'm not sure how much it has to do with inflation. Well, in fact, as most economists say, it won't end inflation. It will just fuel inflation. But here again, you see that you've got people who are making plots and plans to achieve an agenda, but they have to give deceptive words and statements and misrepresent what they're about because if you knew what they were doing, you might object to it. You might even, I don't know, vote them out of office. If something is essentially is lost in a culture where conspiracies proliferate, when they become the very way that a society functions, as increasingly ours is, and the first casualty is always the truth. See, conspiracies depend upon deception. You have to use lies and distortions and false promises and false premises. You use twisted rhetoric so that words don't mean what they ordinarily mean but are veiled and, and misleading. And the only prophylactic against conspiracies is transparency and, and truth. And so conspirators work overtime to control the narrative by silencing the opposition. A tactic that only succeeds when the citizens agree to go along with it. Whether through apathy or complacency or just simply exhaustion. Many times people just sit back and go, whatever. 
I just, I don't care about it. I just don't want to be involved anymore. Hannah Arendt, who, one of her, her books that she's best known was, was on totalitarianism, who was uh, kind of the reading, leading political philosopher of the uh, late 20th century, did an analysis of how did the Nazis come to power? How did they manage to get to the place that they were? And, and one of the things that she said that really stuck out to me, she said, when a society loses the desire to know the truth, that is a precursor of totalitarianism. Democracy will die in the darkness. And you just look at that and say, okay, because I look around our society today and I say that one of the things I find is that a lot of people just don't want to really know the truth. Yet when we speak about truth, it's important that rather than seeing uh, truth conforming to our idea of the way things should be, that truth is this thing that stands all on its own, separate from human ideas or opinions or points of view. The thing is, we know something is true if it's real. And if it's real, it works. And we know that real things tend to refute things that are not, so that as a result, we end up with like what we call irrefutable facts. Now, part of the problem is some people say, don't confuse me with the facts, I've already made up my mind. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's a very common way of looking at it. Very few of us would ever admit that we have that mindset that, look, and I've already made up my mind of how things should be, so don't, don't even try to suggest to me anything else. But what I find interesting in our own world today is there's a number of irrefutable facts that people don't really want to hear. I mean, for example, COVID vaccines are not vaccines. <laughs> They're minimally tested, largely unproven genetic therapies. It's gene therapy. It's, it's not a vaccination. It doesn't fit into the category of vaccination. Or the bad thing is I just experienced this last week that one bad hurricane doesn't prove climate change. It just proves that I'm glad I wasn't there. That guns don't pe kill people, but people do kill people, and they do it in a wide variety of ways. That the great, set, great Reset will only benefit 1% of the world. There is no such thing as a build back better plan. That inflation is not transitory. That men can't become women. Abortion is not health care. Do I need to go on? <laughs> I mean, these are facts because they conform with what is real, and therefore they reflect what is true. See, facts are only reliable because they align with God, the creator, who made a real world in which he declared the truth. I mean, for example, God, the creator, said he created human beings as male and female. And no amount of semantics can change that fact because it's just a simple truth. So that when you look at kind of, I was trying to figure out a way of creating a slide that would kind of grid this out to make sense to us. And uh, it may actually appear. There we go, it did. But we find that there's certain inseparable realities that first of all, God says, I created everything. And that's, you know, whether you accept that or not, that's gonna have a tremendous influence of how you view everything else in your world. 
And this is why years ago, the Creation Institute said that the most critical theological principle to grasp is the fact that God created. The book of Genesis becomes the most important book in the Bible. Because in Genesis 1 and 2, it says that God, everything that we see around us is the result of God's creative power, that the material world exists because of him. And if God created the world, then he also created it in an absolute sense. And that's why we end up with what's called absolute truth. Now, you and I live in a world where people are saying, well, truth is relative, which in itself is an oxymoronic, self-contradictory term. Because if something is true, then it has to be true all the time. It can't be relatively true. It's either true or it's not. It's either white or black. It doesn't have, there's no shades of gray in terms of what is truth. So that when God says, I created, he's not saying, with the help of a few friends. I, re, I called on some of my alien bodies to come and plant humans on the planet. You, you realize that there's kind of a logical grid that you have to follow. And if you don't follow that, then you're going to end up with something nonsensical. The thirdly, that if there's absolute truth, then the world that we live in is a real world and is measurable based upon those truths. And at the heart of that, we have God's word, which becomes truth. And all facts have to conform with those things. So, for example, when you talk about something like climate change, why do I not get really concerned about climate change? Well, first of all, because the Bible says that God says as long as the sun rises and the, and the moon rises, that I will not change anything with the climate. The seas will stay where they belong. The earth will continue to be until that moment in which God destroys it with, in, in fire after the coming of Christ. So I, I know that the Bible tells me that the world that I'm living in is always going to be changing. And it does, there is such a thing as climate change. It's called weather. <clears throat> And I don't, I don't underestimate it, but what happens is you begin to be led to kind of extremes. A friend of mine wrote me recently, coming back from the Netherlands, and he said in, 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 uh, in the Netherlands right now, the Dutch farmers are about to be destroyed economically because they're so afraid of the methane gas that their cows produce when they're grazing outside that now you have to get a permit to take your cow out of the barn and let it eat grass based upon their estimation of how much methane they're reducing. And so what happens to the farmer, instead of being able to use the grass that grows naturally to eat the to feed itself, they have to bring in feed and feed them inside of the barns, making it financially impossible for them. And as a result, up to 50% of the farmers, are, are dairy farmers are going to go out of business. And I'm just used to going through uh, Schiphol Airport in, in Amsterdam and buying their cheese. It may become too expensive. But you see, what, what I'm trying to really illustrate is when you believe something that's not true, then you try to reorganize your life around something that is not true. And, it, and how do we know it's not true? Because it doesn't work. It, do, it falls apart. So we know right now that the world is facing a global food crisis in large part because there's been a restriction on fertilizers because they don't want to pollute the environment. And all these things kind of roll together and become a significant effect. So that because someone believes that we produce too much fossil fuel, then if we believe that global warming is the most critical and dangerous thing about us, what do we do? We reduce our fuel supplies, which drives up the prices and begins to create a strain of inflation. 
But my whole point is simply this. I'm not trying to give you an economics lesson. But the whole point is this, is what you believe to be true will inform your choices. So that if I believe that God's word is absolutely true, that's going to inform the decisions that I make in my life on every single level. And if I have any doubt that it's true, then I might pause and reflect and become uncertain and unclear about the choices that I make. And this can get down to very, very basic things. A friend of mine once was, <clears throat> he told me his play against exercise. Here he is, he's running on the treadmill to stay healthy, and suddenly <clears throat> blood starts coming out of his mouth. Of course, they rush him to the hospital, and they realize that a blood vessel inside of his lungs has burst, and it's bleeding into his lungs, and they're rolling him in the gurney down to the surgery room, and the surgeon is running alongside him and saying, now, it's really important that you try to stay calm and, and not become too stressed and worried. Uh, you know, just try to relax. We, I think we've got this, and you should be okay. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, he's trying to keep him from going into shock and, and all that sort of stuff. I get it. And my friend just looked at me and said, Doc, you have to realize, I've lived all my life for the day when I would leave this world and go home to be with Jesus. So if I don't survive the surgery, it's okay. Don't you worry about it. <laughs> what happened? His belief in the truth of God's word that God says, I will come and take you to another place and you will be with me for all of eternity, brought a peace into his heart that he was not worried about what the consequences were going to be. And I think if there's every time where we as Americans need to begin to have that confidence in what God says in his word, it's right now. <laughs> Do we believe it's true and are we willing to commit ourselves to its truth so that it informs the decisions that we make every day of our life? Does it inform my decision-making process? Because at the end of the day, it's not just what you think about as much as it is how those thoughts inform your actions. Because that will determine, ultimately, the direction of your life. It's important when the psalmist says in so many different places and so many repeated phrases, but particularly I think about Psalm 119, 160, where he says, all your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. And later on in chapter 138 Psalm, he says, you have exalted your word above all things. So that God says, if you ever want to know what's absolutely the truth, <laughs> if you want to know, have one thing in your life and say, this is one thing I can hang on to, he says, it is my word that will hold you secure. It is my word that will bring calm into your heart. It'll be my word that'll bring that, that peace and that certainty and that assurance. It's my word that'll free you from panic and fear. Because I find a lot of people are panicked and fearful about a lot of things right now. That is, uncertainties increase, and we have no way of knowing. I'm not being prophetic here, but we have no idea of knowing whether things will become more stable or less stable, more certain or uncertain. There's a second thing I think is important about 
what we think, what we believe, wrong ideas or bad ideas often lead us to bad consequences because we make bad choices. It should not surprise us that our nation is moving further and further away from God's truth and that as a consequence, as we move away from God's word and God's truth, even within the church, it's amazing how many professing evangelical Christians say they believe the Bible is God's word, but not necessarily all the time. I mean, that would be like me saying, I believe my wife is my wife, but that's not necessarily all the time. I mean, I wouldn't live to see the sunset if I were to say that. The whole point is it's, it's a nonsense statement, and yet Christians are comfortable with it because human beings have this unique capacity of holding two contradictory concepts at the same time and not seeing the contradiction. But the simple thing is that am I going to commit my life to the truthfulness of his word or not? Because if I don't, it has bad consequences. So that when we look at our world today and we see this proliferation of false facts and untruths, I mean, there's so many of them, it's, it's crazy that, that they go almost unquestioned. We, we say things like, well, drugs are recreational. That prostitution is victimless. That abortion is harmless. That crime is due to social justice. That if you're a Republican or white, you're a racist. If you're a patriot, you're a Nazi. Justice is only economic. Sex is malleable. Marriage is optional. Religion is private and personal. Moms and dads are non-essential and can be replaced. That God is unknowable unless your God is the government. And then you can know that you can't live without it. And the truth becomes whatever somebody of authority tells us it is. And then we wonder why is everything falling apart? Why corruption is rampant, why civil disorder is, is, is everywhere and society seems to be collapsing. Because without God's truth, we have no way to measure our lives. We have no way to measure our lives. We just wander. And I say this, I, sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm saying that, stating the obvious to people who already know all of this until I talk with some people and I realize it isn't obvious to a lot of people. That we live in this kind of contradictory place where we're not fully committed to following his word because we're not fully convinced it's the best choice. And so we try to play between the two ends. We kind of go fast and loose with scripture. I think thirdly, we need to realize that bad ideas are not simply ideologies or political points of views or political differences. Paul makes it very clear that many of these bad ideas are, he said, quote, doctrines of demons. 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul said, the spirit explicitly says that in the last days, some, referring to professing Christians, will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Even as such, I would say that these things in themselves are merely symptoms of something that is far more dangerous. They're not really the root cause. Because all the evil, the disorder, the dysfunctionality that fills the world, along with all the nefarious conspirators who are spinning their schemes, these 
endless, soulless, selfish schemes that are nothing else but the fruit of the original grand conspiracy hatched by the ultimate conspirator. In Isaiah 14, God calls him out. He speaks to Lucifer. And he says, in your heart you said, I will ascend. I will raise my throne above the stars, which is a reference to the angels of God. I will be the ruler of the angels. I will sit enthroned. I will make myself like the most high. Now, what I find fascinating that statement is he said, God saw Lucifer, this angel, one of the three archangels, the ones in which we're most entrusted with Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer, and he looked at them and he saw his heart without hearing an utterance from his words. And one of the things I think is the helpfully chilling reality of the spiritual life is that God sees your heart. He knows everything about you, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And God is always trying to speak into my heart because that's really where the decisions that will control the path of my life are actually made, in the meditations of my heart. It's one of the reasons the psalmist said, I meditate daily upon his word because I want his word to penetrate my heart. I want his word to inform what's going on on the inner being of my soul so that as I begin to do that, I will begin to think in new ways and in new patterns. And when I begin to think differently, then I begin to act differently and make different choices. That I'll be able to look at a, a situation and say, that's not of God and no good can come out of that. And I'm sorry, I'm not interested in even walking down that path or considering that ob objective because I know that God says, thou shalt not. Now, my wife and I celebrated our, oh, I better get this right, <laughs> our, our 52nd wedding anniversary last June, 52 years. <laughs> I know, she's a lucky woman. <laughs> How did we do that? Can I be very honest with you? You just get up each day and decide you're going to continue to believe that God's word is true. What God has joined together, let no man separate. You begin to realize that there's nothing good that comes from us getting a divorce. In fact, doing enough counseling with married couples, I've realized a lot of bad things happen because of divorce. And I don't say that to condemn any of you who are the victims of that have been through that process. But the reality is, I mean, early in our marriage, when we began to find out that we were incredibly incompatible, I say that because everybody comes to that conclusion <laughs> at some point in your marriage. You know, just the fact that you're a man and a woman makes you incompatible, you know. Just the fact that you have different backgrounds and all these different things. You're not, you're not identical. You don't see anything exactly the same or... You know, it's like I told people, we come across an auto accident. My wife wonders if somebody's hurt, and I want to find out whose fault it is. We really, one's a paramedic, the other's a cop. You know, it's two very, very different moments. And you realize that you don't see those things the same way and, and react the same way. 
And so when you begin to have those tensions and those conflicts, it's easy to let the enemy come in and fantasize you and fill you with the cultural words that says, well, you know, marriage isn't forever and, and you probably have to find your soulmate. I never understood that, finding my soulmate. That's not a biblical concept, by the way. But what I found is that let your yay be yay and your no be no. You said until death do us part, then we're going to be together until the Lord takes one of us home. And, and there's no other discussion. We made the decision early in our marriage. The D word will never be part of our vocabulary. It will never be allowed to be a part of the discussion. So regardless of how difficult seasons became, what do you do? You prayerfully figure out a way to get past that current challenge and obstacle. You work at it real hard. Why? Because saving a marriage is God's work. It's divine work. It's holy work. These things matter. And there's nothing that will have any greater effect upon your life than the survival of your marriage relationship. So my wife and I decided that we're sticking with each other until the Lord takes us home. Now, that doesn't mean that she has not often prayed, come quickly, Lord Jesus. <laughs> and the older I get and the more I get to know myself, I get, her, I get the point. Because <laughs> sometimes I just look in the mirror and say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, please. But here's the thing that God said, that Satan believed something in his heart that was untrue and therefore unachievable. And he's still driven by that same passion to usurp God's place, not just in the universe, but over your personal life. He wants to, as Paul said, to take you captive so you'll do his will that's the battle, that's the struggle you and I are caught up in every single day of our life. That the enemy is saying, do this and I'll bless you in this way or that way. And God says, you know, if you're going to follow me, then you have to pick up your cross daily. You need to deny yourself and follow me. And you have to come to that place in your heart where you're so convinced that God is telling you the truth and those other voices that contradict his word are lies that you choose to take the road less traveled, that narrow path that begins with denying myself, my sensual drives and passions and interests or ambitions and goals. I, I put those aside and say, Lord, your will be done. Your kingdom come in my life. And I can just simply say that over 50 years of doing that, <laughs> we've come to discover that it's true. It's true that the, you look back and say how our lives could have been impoverished and damaged if we had made other decisions. That's why when Jesus was talking about Lucifer, he says to his disciples in Luke 10, 18, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Actually, the context really says, seeing, saying, I foresaw, I see in the future where Satan is going to end up. So some people say, well, Satan has been cast out and he's not active anymore and so we shouldn't worry about him anymore. That's not what Jesus said. He says, I, this is the ultimate result, that Satan will fall like lightning and he'll be cast into the bottomless pit and he'll be chained up and he'll be gone. 
but not yet, because as we get to Revelation 12, John says he sees the vision of the great battle in heaven. A, a great and wondrous sign, he said, appeared in heaven, and an enormous red dragon. His tail swept a third of the stars. We find out later on the stars is reference to angels. Don't ask me to explain how angels could be deceived. I don't know. It's way above my theological pay grade. But God, a third of the stars of the angels, he flung them to the earth, and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough. And he lost their place in heaven, and the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. Or can I say, he leads them into conspiracy. That's why I think when we look at our world today and we see all these kind of efforts to create these conspiratorial dynamics to get people to do this and get people to do that and buy into that and so forth, and we look at that and we have to step back and go, it's not just people who are being dishonest or deceptive. This is the spirit, this is the doctrine of demons. These are demonic doctrines. And I know they're demonic, you know why? Because they violate the word of God. So that when I'm, our kids go to school and they're told that we are just another animal like all the other animals on the planet, and I realize that's a doctrine of demons. Because the Bible says that we were made in the image of God, created for his purpose. And granted, we're image bearers, but at the same time, we're marred by the effects of sin. But the simple fact, God says, no, I have given you dominion over the planet. And I want you to care for it in a God-honoring way. But man is not the master of his own fate. Man is not the captain of his own ship. It's God's ship. He's the master. And he expects you to comply with his will, with his rules. Every conspiracy theory regardless of what it is, is hatched in the heart of hell. And then it's sold to unholy and unprincipled men who in their pursuit of power are unwittingly becoming the servants of Satan. Not my words, but Jesus. When he said in John 8, 44, he said, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Why is truth so important to us? Because it is the characteristic of God. When I was born again, you know what I received? I received the spirit of Jesus Christ into my heart, which is also known as the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth. And that spirit is always convicting me when it finds areas of untruth or dishonesty or disingenuousness. God is always exposing it to us. And so that's why sometimes it's hard to sit down and read the word of God and face it honestly and know it's going to convict you of stuff that you just don't want to deal with. Like how incredibly selfish I am. Well, I'm not as bad as you, but I, you know. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit is doing that because truth is where reality is found, and reality is where 
life works the way it's supposed to be. And so we simply say, I can't do that because it's not true. Conspiracies are built on lies. Lies, Paul said to the Thessalonians, that are told by those who refuse, he says in 2 Thessalonians 2, they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. He goes on, for this reason God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe their own lies. Isn't that crazy? They'll believe their own lies and condemn themselves because they have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. We're called by God to be lovers of truth. Satan knows that only if men believe the absurdities of his lies can they be induced to practice the abominations and commit the atrocities that they're so capable of. So here we are, 60, 70 years later, and we look at Nazi Germany and we scratch our head and say, how could such a well-educated, civilized, advanced culture, which had reached such high levels of achievement in just about every field of science and literature and on and on we go, how could they buy into something so absurd that other people weren't fully human? (laughs) And you know what the explanation is? Borrowing the literature produced by Planned Parenthood and Margaret Sanger back in the 30s, they were able to promote a science that said race is found in the blood and blood has determined your value. So they could look at a whole group of people and say, well, obviously they're not, they're subhuman people. We can, we can eliminate them because they're subhuman, because they're Jewish or they're Slavic or they're gypsies or they're Christians. What they did is they followed the science of the day, which contradicted the word of God. And as Goebbels would say, you just repeat the lie long enough and hard enough and vociferously enough and people will believe it's the truth. Well, that's the bad news. Is there any good news in all this? Well, let me go back to where we began in our reading today. You know, if, if I were thinking that there were 40 of you right now who basically are prepared and weaponized so that when I try to exit this stage, you will fall upon me and kill me and jab me 40 times at least... You know, and the only thing I'll be able to say is turn around and go, et tu, Brute? I mean, if, then you might, you know, it might be disquieting, discomforting, might be a little scary. And I think Paul having, there's a group of men who are more serious. They're not going to eat until they've killed you. I wonder how many of them kept that vow. (laughs) They're probably all the skinny guys by the gate, but... (laughs) But God had spoken to Paul. God had come to him and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify to me in Rome. So here God steps in and says, you know, don't be deterred 
by these threats. Be courageous because I've got you. In fact, it's, it's interesting how that God simply says in Jeremiah 51, Jeremiah says, the purposes of the Lord are the things that will stand, not the purposes of men, the purposes of the Lord. I think that my greatest burden is that you and I will stand in the days of adversity, that if they, become, they come, and I think they probably will, that we will not be people who are so frightened by the things we see going on around us that we start hiding away. We start going quiet and going dark and we become self-protective. I came up with a phrase <laughs> when I was away about being fit and being faithful. What I meant by being fit is that you exercise your faith in the kinds of ways that enables you to become strong in the faith. That means you read your Bible, you pray, you seek God, you feed yourself with godly things, you buy Terry's new CD that he introduced today. Uh, you, you know, you do these kind of, I only get 5%. Anyway, but, <laughs> but you do those kind of things that you know build and edify and strengthen you in the faith. And then you do the second part, you commit to being faithful. That God, that I might be, as Paul said, steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that my labor is not in vain, that I commit to being steadfast. That really comes down to knowing his word, believing that it is word of truth, and striving to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, and, and, and praying as if the only thing you can do is pray. Unfortunately, that last resort should often be our first resort, I've done everything I know to do. All I can do now is pray. You know, well, how about reversing the order? Begin with prayer and realize that the only thing that can change anything, in fact, I can change the entire direction of the universe by praying. When we, the current regime came into power, I started praying every day and have been praying every day ever since that, God, you expose the wicked works of darkness. I think that prayer is getting answered. You know, it, it's interesting. It's just very interesting. And I don't want to take all the credit. You know. <laughs> I alone prayed. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm just kind of buoyed in my spirit and confident that God, the thing that I was asking you to do, and there's probably millions of others who are praying the same thing. God, don't let, as the psalmist said, let the, the tent of the wicked collapse. And God... Let, if they're wicked, let it collapse. Expose the unfruitful works of darkness. Hold them to a higher level of accountability than just the courts or the Congress. But there might be in their mind a sense that they're going to stand before the God of the universe and they're going to have to give account for these decisions and these choices and these laws and these things they do. And I mean that for people on both sides of the aisle and even the ones that try to be right in the middle of it. That there would be this conscience of fear of God in the minds of men. There would be a fear of God in your heart and in my heart. Because when we fear God more than we fear man, then we speak up. And we need to do it respectfully, which I admit is a challenge for me. But we also need to be re refuse to be silent about it as well. And last of all, just we need to be engaged. We've got an election coming up. I hope you're going to vote. If you're not registered, you should. 
It was interesting because uh, last weekend in Italy, they uh, threw out the liberal uh, candidates and they voted in a woman who was highly conservative. CNN was reporting on this tragedy of a conservative becoming prime minister in Italy. And their concern was that they said they have the same theme as the fascists had. We go, oh, really? Well, what was that? Their theme was God, family, and country. And suddenly they're defining that as fascism? And I wonder how many people, like AOC, nodded their head in agreement. Proverbs 29 is a chapter that actually talks about government. Listen to some of the things he said about government. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, people groan. The king gives stability to the land by justice. But a man who takes bribes overthrows it. If a ruler pays attention to falsehood, all his ministers become wicked. As I read that and thought, that is the inviolate word of God that God says, this is how it works. If you have an unrighteous, wicked ruler, people will be oppressed. If they take bribes, the nation will be overthrown. If they listen to falsehoods and promote them, then the land will become wicked. That's not like it might happen. God says, this is what happens. So when I think about the immorality in our culture today and the violence and everything else, you know where I think the real failure lies? With the church. I think it lies with the church. I think it's because we have been lukewarm. We've been uh, too willing to disconnect from the realities of things going around us. We've viewed these as other people's problems. But we haven't really embraced with all of our hearts the fact that God has called you and I to be difference makers in our culture. That somehow in our jobs, in our relationships and other things that we have to stop fearing that we'll be viewed as being unloving, unkind, and impolite. And if we've got to become nice and kind of, well, you have your truth and I have my truth and all the rest of that. And find within us somewhere to be able to say, you know, this is what the truth is. Here's reality. That Paul said we need to convict the world of sin. 